Good morning, church. You may be seated. If you are new here, welcome to FCBC Walnut. My name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and this morning in our English service, we will be continuing through our sermon series through the book of Isaiah. This morning, we will be going through Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1 through 20. Uh, the title to this morning's message is <clears throat> Providential Help. And in order for this message to go well, let me go ahead and pray for us for his providential help. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. All of us here, with, with, with each with our own joys, our own baggage, our own stress and pressure. I pray, Lord, that this morning, as we come here now to your word, we will come before your throne and lay them all at your feet. And I pray, Lord, that your word will speak crystal clear to our hearts so that we may be encouraged. And so may your word be heard and may your glory be known. I lift these things up in your name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn me to Isaiah 41. I do not have the verses on the screen behind me, so please pull them up in front of you, whether it's on your phone or with a physical copy. Uh, and we'll be going through verses 1 through 20. We, we live in an anxious world, a, a world where it's driven by fear. And in our fear-driven culture, we are captivated by what can threaten our safety. And we think about the genres out there in terms of what people enjoy. Apocalyptic genres are a huge hit amongst us. And we think about the news article, the news outlets out there. They, they tend to capture the doom and gloom, and they market it. They market it well. It captures our attention. Everything, everything becomes a major threat before us, both for our present day and for our future. And we, we, under, we see this, and we're, 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 we're driven by this fear because we have insurance for everything. Right? Think of one thing, there's some kind of guarantee, some kind of warranty, some kind of insurance you can purchase. We, we have all this because we're afraid of losing what we have, of losing what we have earned. We want these kind of assurances in our lives. We want this kind of peace. We want this kind of security. Why do we wrestle with this kind of fear? I mean, this fear, what is it? Fear comes into our hearts when we, when we feel too weak to control the situation we're in. I'll repeat that. Fear comes into our hearts when we feel too weak to control the situation that we're in. When we're facing someone who is stronger than us, when we're facing a situation that feels so dire that we just can't figure out what to do with it, when we're facing great uncertainty, fear and anxiety arises in our hearts because we feel like we're losing control. And the reality is, the reality is, is that we are not in control. We are not. God is. 
And God wants you to know that. In fact, he wants the whole world to know that. As we come here now to Isaiah 41, it's not just Israel that God wants people to know who's in control, but he wants the world. Look with me in verse 1. It says here, he says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. You see, what God here is doing in verse 1 is he is challenging the nations, not just Israel, but the coastlands, the peoples, everyone. He's saying, come here, come into this courtroom, have a debate with me. And God here is saying, come here and come know that I am in control which is the first point here, that we're going to see the providence of God. The providence of God. Now, we can understand that God is in control. Uh, last week, we covered Isaiah 40, and we saw that God is the one who reigns over all the earth. He is the one who named the stars. He is the everlasting, never tireless God, filled with infinite strength and wisdom. God is in complete control of this world. We understand that. But here when we come to Isaiah 41, God challenges the world with another aspect of his providence. Uh, perhaps an aspect that we tend to wrestle with. It says here that God controls the course of human history to the point where he's like a conductor orchestrating the nations to do his will, even the pagan nations. Look with me in verse 2 to 4. God gives, some, gives a question and then he answers it. He says, Who? Who stirred up the one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He, he gives us nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who? Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? Here's the answer. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. God says this answer with complete, 100% certainty. It is the Lord Yahweh who is the first and the last. Everything in the world begins with him, and everything in this world will end with him. And this is exactly the aspect of God's providence that we tend to have trouble with. I mean, we can accept that the God created this world, and that God is perhaps in control of mother nature, and he's doing all of these different things, and all that's in it. God can control nature, bring about rain, bring about famine. He's in control of that. But can God really control the outcome of people's actions? let alone no, entire nations? I mean, if this is true, the implication of this is huge. It means that he's sovereign over everything in our lives. Scripture is unassailable in God's providence over kings and nations. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, the king's heart is a, a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he says, God changes times and nations. Oh, sorry, he changes times and seasons. And in the same way, he removes kings and set up kings. 
God is in control of who sits in the presidency, who sits on the thrones of all these nations across the world. In Job chapter 12, 23, it says, God makes nations great, and he also destroys them. He enlarges nations, and he leads them away. Scripture's clear about God's control over the nations. And so there is, there is then this aspect. If you have a problem with how this world is, whether it's with political leaders, societal trends, with the stock market, if you have a problem with this world, you ultimately have to take it up with God. And what we're going to see here in the rest of our passage are then two responses. Two responses to God's ultimate authority and sovereignty over all things. And we're first going to see the fearful response of the pagan nations. And then we're going to see the joyful response of God's people. So first, the fearful response of the pagan nations. Looking here now in verse 5. Here is how the pagan nations respond. It says, the coastlands, these nations, they have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. When we read this this verse here, I mean, we will think that when God shows such a great power that they will submit to God, right? They will submit their lives to God. But instead, their response here is exactly the opposite. What we're going to see here is that instead of turning towards God and submitting to His sovereignty, instead they turn to each other and they double down on their own strength. It says, verse 6, everyone then, everyone helps his neighbors and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths the, with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying to the soldier, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. You see, these nations here, they're acting as if God's providence is like this tidal wave coming in. And all they have to do is just anchor themselves. They have to brace themselves just not to be swept away. And so they're nailing down their anchors. The key word that we see here is to strengthen. To strengthen. Right? He says to his brother, be strong. And then in verse 7, the craftsman strengthens the ghostsmith. The word to strengthen here means to gird. It means to make strong, right? You hear the phrase from Scripture, gird yourself. It's the same word. The idea here is that the people are gathering together. They're gathering together, and, and they're, they're saying, man, we just, if we just link arms, we can be stronger, right? They got the warrior's mantra going, strength in numbers, right? And so they're encouraging one another. They're hyping each other up. And what we see here is that there's just there's two ways to respond when we come before God's sovereignty and we experience this kind of fear. There's two ways to respond. Either we submit to this fear and we allow that fear to control us, or we conquer fear by preparing ourselves mentally, emotionally, and physically. And that's what the nations are doing here. They're doing the latter. They're trying to conquer this fear by strengthening themselves. And this is the kind of rebellion against God's providence that we see throughout human history. And it begins with the Garden of Eden. 
Adam Eve wanting to rebel, and so we see them disobey God, seeking what is right in their own eyes. We see in the Tower of Babel, human, humanity corrupted by sin, wanting to see their name, make a name for themselves, so they build a strong tower trying to reach the heavens. We see this in the time of Judges, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. This is the kind of rebellion that we see described in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, where men, though, the so- though God's sovereign rule over this world is clear, men will suppress the truth of God. And they do not honor him as the creator, as the ruler of this world. What we see here in this text is that sin is more than, is more than just mere disobedience. Sin. Sin seeks freedom from God's sovereignty. Sin seeks freedom from God's sovereignty. It rejects God as king and seeks to establish its own reign. And we see this kind of sin reigning in our society today. People challenge the Bible's teaching on sexual morality, hoping for more sexual freedom. They battle against the oppression of the church by claiming that morality is wrong and mentally abusive, to, and it's, it, it, that all this is wrong in order to call sin sin. So they say you shouldn't call sin sin. You should call, say something else. Say that we're we're weak, we're broken. We're not necessarily sinners. They will place the highest value on individual ability to choose his or her own identity rather than seeking identity that comes from God. You see, we see a world here where man seeks to place himself in a higher authority above God. We see a place where man claims to know what is best, that God doesn't know. And so we see a world arguing that science is greater than faith, that individual happiness is found in a self-made identity, that the future hope of this world lies in the hands of human innovation technology, rather than in the hands of God. But here's the thing. It is not just in the world around us where we find God's sovereign rule being challenged. We actually also find it in the battle of our own hearts. We wrestle with God and his providence in our lives when we sin. You see, we here, if you're here in this room, you claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. You're proclaiming and you submit your lives to Him. You understand that. And yet, how many times when we read through Scripture in our daily devotion, you hear a sermon and you hear that Jesus asks for you to sacrifice your time, your comfort, your money, your dreams, all of a sudden, what do you do? You hesitate. We wonder, to, we wonder and we ask God, Jesus, you can ask for anything from me, but don't ask for that. Don't, don't, don't take away my, my good health. Don't, don't take away my, my job security. Don't call me to be single for the rest of my life. I don't want that. Don't ask me to move away. Don't ask me to go to church plant or to go do missions. Anything but that. You see, we in our weaknesses... In our sin, we too are afraid when God's sovereignty calls us to do something that we don't want to do. 
And it's in that fear where we try to double down with God. We ask him anything but that. I want us to understand this fear. You see, this fear that our society has with God, that our own hearts wrestle with God, this fear doesn't stem from God's sovereignty. I want us to get that. That this fear here, it doesn't, it doesn't originate from God's providence over everything. No, what God's sovereignty, what it does, it, is, it sparks that fear. But the tinder that that fear is made out of, that tinder is our own weakness and idols. And look at this passage again. It says here the nations, they bolster themselves in their commitment to human strength, to human skills, to their man-made technology. See, they, they, they're, they're trying to cling on to these things. And, and you know what? I think deep down for all of us, I think we recognize that these things are temporary. These things cannot sustain us. These things cannot save us. That we understand that everything that we have in this world is so fickle that in a moment's notice, it can be swept away. I think deep down we, un- we know that. That we can lose all that we have earned and gained in this world. And that's exactly the tension that we feel. We notice God makes it clear. I mean, he makes it clear that he can make everything disappear and vanish in an instant. And yet, what do we do? We try to hold on. Don't we? Don't we try to hold on? We try to hold on, holding on to our idols, hoping, gripping with them tighter and tighter, hoping that, one, that somehow, some way, we can force these things to give us some kind of peace and security. It's like, it's as if we built this amazing sandcastle at the beach, right? And just, it's amazing. We can like, even practically live in it, right? But we're trying to protect it from the waves that are crashing in at high tide, but it's inevitable. In other words, we're doubling down on a false promise, on a pretty facade, on a giant ruse. We're, we're bluffing ourselves into thinking that we have a winning hand, but all that we have is a pair of twos. God's providence produces fear in those who hold on to their idols. But, as we'll keep on reading, God's providence for God's people. If, you, if you're God's people, you hold on to God and his promises. His providence no longer produces fear. Instead, it takes on a whole new life. Instead, what we see here is a joyful response. A joyful response. God's providence becomes a saving grace, a safety net, a trump card. And we see here in verses 8 to 16, just how God's people, when he run towards his sovereignty and run towards his providence rather than away from it, what it does is it produces a joyful response. I mean, just, just listen. Just listen to these verses, verse 8 to 10. God says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. 
I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I mean, doesn't God's providence here suddenly become music to your ears? If you're facing a situation that's so far out of your control, where you feel so powerless against it, how comforting is it to know that God, that the God of the universe is by your side to help you. And just take a look here. In verse 9, it says here, you whom I took, I took you, I took you from the ends of the earth. The word took there, it's the same Hebrew word as the word to strengthen that we saw back in verse 7. Right, in verse 7, though, the Hebrew word is in, this is for all the Old Testament nerds here in this room. The, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament here, in verse 7, is in its peel form, all right? Which, what it does in that form is it intensifies the action, right? It's, the idea here is one of reinforcement. These pagan nations, there's a strength to one another. They're looking at each other to their idols, to their human strength, and they're doubling down. They're strengthening themselves. There's an emphasis that they're, they're, they're that there's an emphasis on the action itself. All right. But here in verse 9, that same word to strengthen is found in the hithil form, which means here now all of a sudden the focus is not on the result of the action, but the focus now turns to the cause of the action. So what that means is that the word here that we see in verse 9 that's translated as took the idea here is not focused on the fact that Israel is strong, but it's focused on the fact that Yahweh is the one who makes them strong. A better translation of the word is the word sees. See, the Lord has this firm grip on his people, right? This firm grip, a clamp that doesn't loosen. He offers no wiggle room. He grasps onto his people with full assurance. He grasps onto his people. It's, it's like it's like my son with his fruits. He, when he, he loves eating fruits, and when he, when he sees a fruit in front of him, whether it's a strawberry or a watermelon, he grabs it and he squeezes it until all the juices come out. And he just, he just loves it. Now, I know I just compared my son to God. Perhaps I should probably compare, you know, it's, that's, no, or God to my son. That should be actually the other way around, so forgive me for that. But just to kind of give that illustration, God holds you in that way. God holds his people in this way. With such a tight, firm grip, and that's what strengthens our hearts. I mean, with that in mind, just, just reread verse 10. Imagine God holding on to you, and you're, 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 it's, just, it's like this warm embrace, and yet it's so secure and you read verse 10, God's saying, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The sure hand of God. The sure hand of God is the one that holds us in the midst of the deadliest storms. Brothers and sisters, this is the exact word that we need to hear when we are facing suffering and trials beyond our comprehension. When we're, when, when we're facing difficult times, 
Aren't we tempted to think that God doesn't bless us? Aren't we tempted to think that God cannot help us? That in order to overcome whatever situation we face, we, we have to somehow strengthen our resolve. We have to gird ourselves mentally, emotionally. We have to brute force our way through the situation. But that's, that's the thing, right? When, when, when you face relational conflicts or, you get, or when you look upon the world and the, dry, and the job market is drying up and, or you're facing unexpected financial difficulties or maybe you've been hit with a major injury or disease, when the stresses of this life compound, compound into an unbearable weight, don't you need something or someone to anchor you down? We all need that. We all need some kind of lifeline, some kind of ballast in the storms of life. Simply put, we need help. But with God, we have all the help we can get. No hardships stand a chance against God. Look at me in verse 11. He says, Behold, behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Why? For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. You see, but when you have God on your side, every conflict, every battle, every struggle suddenly just fades away. They become background noise because God, the Lord, Yahweh, is holding your hand like a father taking his child's hand. When you, when you do that, when, you're, when your kid is afraid, you hold his hand, you hold her hand, suddenly that child's fear, what happens? It just disappears. It melts away because all this child knows now is his father's strength, his protection, his love, and he feels secure. The imagery here continues. You know, this time, it shows us how strong God makes his people. In verse 14, he says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you man of Israel. God is, in a sense, insulting them. But look here. He says, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And here's the result. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. The imagery here, it shows us a threshing sledge. A threshing sledge is this large contraption made of heavy timber with sharp stones and metal pieces underneath it. And so you pull it across a, a pile of crops in order to separate the kernel from its husk. And so you imagine here a worm, a lowly worm, a lowly, stinky, gross worm that gets stomped on. All of a sudden, this worm turns into a threshing sledge that can crush mountains and hills into nothing. It is a picture of the weak turned strong. 
of the lowly turned mighty, of the underdog becoming victorious. This is Moses against Pharaoh, David against Goliath, Esther against, hum- against Haman. And this is a story for all of us, is it not? The story for all of us, all of us who believe. Right, just as verse 14, right, it says that your Redeemer is the Holy One of God, so too is our Redeemer. Our Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel as well. Only we know Him by His name, His human name, Jesus. I mean, just, just think about that. Jesus, when He went to the cross and He died on the cross for your sins, what happens? First Corinthians tells us that what happens at the cross is we who are foolish in this world can shame the wise. We who are weak in the world can shame the strong. We who are nobodies in this world can bring to nothing things that are. In other words, the cross puts all these idols in the world to shame. Whatever the world finds value in, Wherever the world finds its security in, wherever the world finds its strength in, the cross crushes it. And it's the lowly, humiliating cross that shows the world, that shows all of us, that the power to save falls not in the hands of man, but in God. Brothers and sisters, when you put your faith in God, his suddenly his providential rule over this world, over your life, no longer becomes fear. It becomes our security, becomes our joy, becomes our source of happiness and hope. God's sovereignty is indeed our joy. And when we, again, we cons- if we consider the context of Isaiah, right? The people of Isaiah, the, Israel, Judah, whatever nation he's talking to, whatever the case is, they're facing imminent exile. They're about to be taken away to lose their land, to lose their homes, for families to be separated. They're going to lose it all. They're going to lose it all because a nation stronger than them is coming. And what that means is there's going to be war. And isn't that what war does? Wars take away everything. Right, the reality of war, what it does to a nation, it puts a whole nation in fear because a war can crash the economy. It can leave so many homeless. It can separate families. It can take away innocent lives. In summary, war. War makes our greatest fear a reality. It's why we don't like war. It's why we, we, we want to stop wars. Our fears are connected to our idols, money, status, peace, relationships, longevity. War then presents a very real threat to each one of these idols. And like an incoming tsunami wave, it's going to crash upon the house that we built and everything gets wiped away in a swift moment. You see, it's in times of peace is in times of peace when the comforts of this world becomes our idol. And yet remember, who's the one who brings this war to Israel's doorsteps? God. God's the one who controls the kings and nations. He's the first and the last, and no nation will move without his command. 
And God will use a terrible, terrifying event like war to show Israel that their riches, their riches. Remember last week, we saw that Hezekiah showed the Babylonians all that he has. Their riches, their earthly treasure accomplishments, they will not last. They will not save them. God says, I can take them all away. Don't trust in them. And therefore, all idols will get crushed, pulverized, and swept away. See, God is in the business of erasing the idols of this world. And all that remains after the dust settles will be God himself. When everything is gone and you are standing naked, exposed, weak, and ashamed, when you have lost it all, it is then and only then when you realize that you need help that only God can provide. And God provides it in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus took your shame to the cross, and Jesus became weak so that you can be strong. Jesus covers your nakedness in his righteousness. Jesus did it all so that you can share in his glory and rejoice in his name. At the end of the day, all we, what we need is not less of God's sovereignty. We need more. When you're facing a trial beyond your understanding, it is tempting to question God to ask him, why is this happening to me? Why did you allow this? Why did you create me this way? Why aren't you facing the problem? And that creates fear, doesn't it? You're scared that God will take away the one thing you prize in this world, your health, your relationships, your money, your status. Whatever the case is, you're, you're fearful that God will take it away. And that's what, that makes God's providence in your life scary. But perhaps God is taking it away to show you just how poor and needy you truly are, to show you that your idols cannot save you, your idols cannot promise you everlasting peace. They're perishable, and they will pass away along with this world. Perhaps God has shown you that his providence and sovereignty over your life is not meant to judge you or scare you, but his providence is meant to help you bless you, which is the last point, that God's providence is meant to help you, to show you his everlasting grace, to tell you that even when you worship other gods and other idols, God is faithful to bring you back, and he wants to show you that his providence in your life is not meant for fear, but for joy. Jesus says himself in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome this world. And what does he mean by that? He means that nothing in this world, nothing, no matter how threatening, no matter how devious, no matter how strong this world may be, no tribulation, no distress, nor persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor sword, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that includes your own idols. God will look upon your idols and says, this separates you, but don't worry, I'm going to take that away from you so that your relationship with me can be restored. 
I mean, even prepping this message this past week, I had, a, I had a really busy week. My family just moved, and there's a lot of ministry stuff happening this weekend. I, was just, I felt overwhelmed. I was preparing this message, and I was, and I was like, man, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of anxious coming up here to preach this morning. And then I kept reading his word, studying his message, and, and the, the words, fear not, keep coming to my head. And I'm just like, why am I not getting this in my own heart? And so I finally sat down and started just thinking through what is going on in my own heart. Why am I so afraid? What are my idols? And I realized I was afraid I wasn't going to get all this stuff done. I wasn't going to get this message done. I wasn't going to get uh, these other ministry duties I had done. And I was afraid. But ultimately, what I was afraid of was how people, you, would perceive me as a pastor. Whether I'm a good pastor or not, a good preacher or not. Whether I actually did my duty well. And I realized when that was my idol. When my own strength and my own success, my own, my, just my own work became my idol, that created fear. Because I was trying to double down and hold on to those things. And how to give that up to God. And what God showed me in my meditations, He showed me to trust in His Word. To not worry about getting everything perfectly right, all the sentences carefully crafted, but just simply preach His Word. And allow His Word to do the work. So that when his word does the work, it is not I who receive any glory but him. And I was able to rest in that. See, God can overwhelm our lives in different ways and different aspects to simply show us that he's been there all along. So he can say to you, fear not, for I am with you. I am your God. Jesus says he has overcome this world by his death and resurrection. He did that for you. So that you don't have to fear this world or fear losing it. He did that for you so that your treasure, your worth can be found in Christ and Christ alone. And God wants to point you to that truth over and over again. That you belong to Christ and therefore you have nothing to fear. We give the big idea real quick, and I'll come back to verse 17, 20 to close. The big idea is this. Do not fear God's providence in your life, because it will lead you to your greatest joy. Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. And it is when our idols fail us, it's when we finally turn to the Lord for help. Let me close by reading the final verses of, of our passage here. Verse 17, 20 says in Isaiah 41, 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst. So this is us when our deepest bog at our bottoms says, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. Why? What's the whole purpose of all this? So that 
they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this. The Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, has created it. When we finally humble ourselves, letting go of our man-made gods and idols and turning to the sovereign Lord in weakness and humility, that is when we will experience the truest joy and the truest blessing found in God alone. And that is when we will come to see and know and understand together that the world belongs to God and his kingdom will last forever. And that's a good thing. For blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven where God's sovereign rule is not fearful judgment but blessed assurance let's pray father we are thankful for your providential rule over this world because in your providence we then see that you will help your people and you will help your people by bringing us to see Christ your son, our redeemer. Lord, thank you for being in total control of our lives, for always bringing us back and reminding us where our true treasure lies, and for bringing us comfort and security in the, t in the moments of our lives where we fear this world. Lord, thank you. Thank you for helping us Thank you for walking with us. Thank you for holding us. Thank you, Lord, for keeping us. We are, we are so blessed to be in your hands. I lift these things up in the name of Jesus. Amen.